0: Welcome to episode 65 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at innovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Conrad Chase, co-founder and chief revenue officer at Point Load Power. But before we get to the podcast, I'd like to again acknowledge the nation's pain, sadness, and frustration in the face of the murders of Rashad Brooks in Atlanta, George Floyd in Minneapolis, Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Brianna Taylor in Louisville, Sean Reed in Indianapolis, and Tony McDade in Tallahassee. For all the names that we know, there are still countless victims throughout our country's history whose names and experiences have been erased. If you're able, please join me in donating to Black Lives Matter and seeking out other ways to make this country as equal as we want it to be. Point Load Power is focused on unlocking the trillions of dollars on the empty rooftops of the 120 million commercial buildings in the United States. Their PV Booster Rooftop Tracker follows the sun as it moves across the sky, increasing efficiencies and cost savings and optimizing carbon reduction. At Point Load Power, Conrad leads a team of Idea Lab trained engineers and solar project developers bringing utility-scale experience to developing, financing, and installing the next generation of renewable energy solutions to building owners and occupants. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat I'm here with Conrad Chase. He's the co-founder and chief revenue officer at Point Load Power. Conrad, welcome to the Climate Champions.
1: Thank you for having me, Lee.
0: You and I have been talking about doing this for quite a while. I think what held us up is we were waiting for you guys to get some wind under your wings. Yeah,
1: that's right. I think we connected one right when you were kicking off the podcast and two, we had just kicked off a seed round with our company as we were spinning out of the incubator where we were founded at Idealab in Pasadena. So as a young company, we've been making a lot of progress. And I'm happy to see that you've made a lot of progress in your podcast as well.
0: Absolutely. It's nice to have us both moving forward so successfully. Can you talk about your motivating moments when you decided you would spend your time working on mitigating climate change?
1: Absolutely. Interestingly, I came to the renewable energy industry through possibly the most non-renewable business I've participated in in my career, which is mining. Literally prior to getting into solar project development, I was in the mining and metals business and really came to an awareness that there's a big interest across the board and across the world to have renewable power projects implemented, permitted, etc. And I would see the permitting line at the permit office across the world be expedited for clean energy projects. And as I became more and more aware to it, especially early on in 2008, 9, and 10, my interest started just purely based on this is more efficient, faster, projects are getting done, and everybody wants them. And so that was really my first exposure to the clean energy industry. Since then, I'm all in on the business, I'm all in on the mission, and I've seen time and time again the potential outcome of not focusing on clean power and distributing clean power where people need it.
0: What moved you from business to mission?
1: It was actually a presentation that I saw by a Russian retired space admiral of some kind, and he was showing a presentation of a photograph of the Earth from some sort of satellite way deep in space, and this photograph was pretty much a gigantic black background with a very tiny, tiny little circle, which was Earth, and it kind of freaked me out, I'll be honest. And as he described what was keeping us as human beings from floating out into the blackness was a layer of atmosphere that starts at sea level and goes about 5,000 meters up, and that was it. And one of those is rising, and the other one is coming down. And it was just that visual that made me realize we have a very limited set of resources here, and if we don't take care of them, we're going to be floating out in space before we know it. (laughs)
0: I don't want to float out in space.
1: I don't either, at least not yet.
0: I guess if Elon Musk gets his way, we'll all take a chance floating out in space.
1: I've seen enough sci-fi movies to understand I don't necessarily want to see what that future looks like. (laughs) And if we have the opportunity to improve the condition here, shame on us for not doing that.
0: Why is climate change mitigation personal to you?
1: First and foremost, because it's my bread and butter. It's my career. I've gone deep into the solar energy industry, project development industry, seen that bleed into the financial markets. And now at Point Load Power, we sit on the technology side, inventing and commercializing new technology to sell into this marketplace and accelerate the adoption of clean energy. So today it's part of everything that I do when I wake up to the time I go to bed, as well as all my networks and communities. To answer your question of how it became personal to me is because it's the right thing to do. I know of many other conditions out in the world where they are not improving, such as hunger, education, violence against different community groups. And it's an agreed upon reality that that is not good. And those are conditions that need to be changed. And climate change is one that affects everybody from the wealthiest people to the poorest across the world. And it needs to be addressed.
0: When you meet people that don't believe that climate change is an issue or don't believe the data, how do you discuss that with them?
1: This is a very personal question. I actually started in the solar industry in the Midwest, in Indiana, where there's not much sunshine and the power price is very cheap. And the majority of the population that we would talk to does not believe that climate change is real. So when attempting to sell them solar projects and inspire them to take action on solar technologies. It was an uphill battle from the beginning. Frankly, we would not have success trying to convince them that climate change was real. And the way that our company and my colleagues at the time were able to make a lot of traction in deploying solar with these different community members was really focusing on the efficiency and the financials and the economics of making your own power. As I like to tell folks that we get into this discussion, I point something at the sun. I say, show me any other business model where you point something at the sun and money shoots out every single day. (laughs) And that usually got their attention.
0: It does seem like a shame to me that it takes either money or real devastation to get people to act on these kind of major issues.
1: Yeah, it, it seems like a shame to me as well. I'm an eternal optimist and I would hope that human beings do the right thing because it's the right thing. Unfortunately, I think history has shown that that's not the motivations that people take action on. What excites me about the clean energy industry, solar, batteries, all the different new technologies around grid 2.0 that are emerging is they make money. And as the grid becomes more expensive, unreliable, these different clean energy solutions become the most profitable solutions on the market. And that is something that nobody really ignores.
0: Thank goodness that the prices come down to that point because otherwise we'd be in really bad shape.
1: Yeah. At some point, since the prices have come down and the alternative has gone up in so many markets, even without incentives, it just becomes the most profitable choice. And we see that especially in the commercial and industrial market where point load power is focused. Even the name point load power, point loading is an engineering term for how weight and Equipment interfaces with building structures on roofs, and it's a complicated thing to solve, and it's what we're we're solving for with our technologies. The conversations that we have on a daily basis are all with commercial building owners, industrial building owners, and the businesses that occupy and operate in those buildings. And when they look at investments, they are not evaluating this energy investment payback over some different technology investment payback. They're evaluating it over how they value their own money in their core business. And so if solar or any of these you know, energy investments have a longer payback than what they could otherwise make in the paper industry or food business or whatever it is, they're going to continue doing what they're doing. So we're really focused on the economics and starting with where those opportunities are, where it's clear that this competes with your core business economics that you're used to every day. And it's working. It's resonating very well.
0: I think that's an important point, that they're not saying, can I save money on energy necessarily? They're looking at where to invest their dollar. And it it might be that they're okay paying more for energy if they can get a better return spending their dollar somewhere else, their
1: capital dollar. That's right. And the opportunities for solving business problems that are non-obvious are all over the place. And they're very easy to get businesses evaluating solar and energy projects over the hump when you can identify some of those non-obvious opportunities. For example, including a roof in a PPA, keeping it off balance sheet so they can use that capital elsewhere, or reuse sites with the EPA. That's something that my colleagues and I have experience in is working on complex sites. The EPA is thrilled, and the cities that have these Superfund sites are thrilled when you can convert them into energy generation facilities to serve the community. The conversation changes when those types of opportunities come to people's awareness. Mm And we get to solve more problems than just energy savings and cost, essentially. But we're solving big, lingering issues that some businesses and communities may have had for a long time.
0: You did mention that cost was the biggest driver and point load power, which you defined for us, which was very cool because I didn't know what it meant, (laughs) uh, does drive cost down. Do you want to talk about what point load power does, how it works and what you do?
1: Yeah, so we as a team, we're a small team. There's seven of us. We started the company together with Idealab, which is a technology incubator founded by Bill Gross, a very long-running, successful tech entrepreneur and a very big climate champion based in Southern California. And we are, by background, project developers, specifically in utility-scale, large-scale energy project developers. We've implemented over 200 megawatts of solar and energy storage projects across the US and some internationally. We've had roles in finance, engineering, manufacturing, supply chain, construction. And we saw an opportunity that was, for some reason, overlooked, which was the commercial and industrial solar market. And as the utility scale market boomed, which we were a part of, the residential market has its own nuances to its growth. The commercial market was flat out not making any movement at all. And one of the big opportunities we saw in that was that the technologies that existed for ground mount projects, such as tracking, which is one of the two biggest innovations in project efficiency, that and the different panels efficiency gains that have happened, was not available for rooftop projects. And so the economics of rooftop projects were not as good as what was possible on the ground. And as we saw in the utility market, that started booming and the commercial business did not. So we started Point Load Power to exclusively go after the commercial and industrial real estate market and transform the 87 billion square feet of empty roof space that we call idle assets into clean energy power plants. And our mission of the company is to realize the value of clean energy. And you see that a lot in our approach. I love that word to realize, to make real, make real for integrators, make real for the building owner, make real for the tenant. And anybody that has to have a say in how these projects actually get done.
0: Because Point Load Power is on commercial rooftop, how has the pandemic affected you and your company?
1: That's a good question. The pandemic, first of all, has affected everybody. The interesting trends that we have found as this has rolled out since beginning of March is who it's affected in a positive way and who it's affected in a negative way. Obviously as a company and our pipeline of new business that we're really relying on to grow our business and continue growing our team, we obviously are keeping a close eye on that. So we've seen certain sectors and thus potential customers of ours flat out vanish. Their business was very negatively affected by the freeze in activity in the economy. Others, especially those in the food business, food production, distribution, warehousing, they have never been busier and they are on a big boom right now while also being very aware and concerned that as we get into a a rhythm post-COVID that there's still other threats out there that can affect their business like grid disruption, wildfires, rising costs, things like that. So I feel fortunate that we've got a number of customers that we're working with that see that regardless of the crisis and madness of the pandemic And so we're looking forward to closing some projects, even through the crisis.
0: You already talked a little bit about your journey, what you used to do and what you do now. Can you fill in the details a little bit more?
1: Like I said before, I started in the solar energy industry in approximately 2013. That was back in in Indiana, in the Midwest. And we were a developer and a project integrator. My time with that business we financed and built a number of projects but really saw certain technologies going in on the ground and utility projects to the tune of 25 megawatts 60 megawatts 40 megawatts and we were also installing a lot of rooftop jobs for big corporates on some very very large rooftops duke realty ikea big distribution centers across the east coast and midwest and we had always talked about a opportunity for bringing tracking systems that we were installing on the ground and putting them on roofs, but there was no viable option out there until one day I bumped into Mr. Bill Gross through a mutual friend. And that's exactly what he had invented. So he had invented a small micro tracker that is distributed behind each panel individually. And by virtue of it being small, it's lightweight, and it is sturdy, it's low profile. And it can finally, for the first time, pass the Restrictions that have kept tracking systems off of rooftops for the first time, which are weight and wind. The code requirements of rooftops across the country are very challenging in that they're different. They have different interpretations, there's different actual calculation requirements. And so creating a product that can address a lot of those concerns and get on rooftops was very challenging. So came in 2016 to commercialize this product working for Bill Gross. That was about Four years ago, we've gone through two generations of the technology. It's been a very linear commercialization piloting process where we deployed our Gen 1. We operated Gen 1 in the field for more than a year, used that information so our engineering team could create a very powerful Gen 2, which is faster, lighter, stronger, the whole nine yards, and also built a supply chain that is based in North America. We make all of our tracking equipment back in South Bend, which is something I'm very proud of, that we have not only U.S.-based, but Midwest-based is Again, just something near and dear to my heart.
0: Yeah. Commercial rooftops tend to be flat. So it seems like you help with efficiency even more because of that.
1: Every roof is different. Even if it's flat, it's not quite flat. It has dips and curves and slopes. What orientation are the buildings? What orientation are rooftops? What obstructions and shading issues are available? And then what's the code requirement? Getting into the rooftop business coming from utility scale, I really get it that solving for the rooftop thing is not easy. And those companies out there that have built a business around mastering rooftops, that's a very, very complex exercise in and of itself. Yet on top of it, making something track move and have data-driven computer capabilities embedded in each tracker. So we've definitely found ourselves in this niche because we had to solve for both. And I believe we've done a fantastic job at that.
0: All right, so I was wrong with my flat comment.
1: But it is still an important issue because the other trend that we've seen, getting these trackers out into the market The solar market broadly understands trackers on a roof very quickly. What's the production gain? What's the cost difference? And is it listed and bankable and UL certified, et cetera?
0: Those are all questions I would ask.
1: Very basic, important questions, no matter what project or technology is being used. What we found fascinating, literally after hundreds of conversations, two SPIs, and multiple events and webinars and different industry events promoting this stuff, is that there's so much variability in how projects are going on rooftops that there's not a right answer for what we're compared against, right? So is the system installed flat on a flat roof? Are they tilted on a flat roof? If the roof isn't oriented south, do people put it south anyways? Or installers design it southwest or southeast? What's the rate that they're on? What happens when the rate changes? All these things become this black hole exercise of what the industry is calling a best practice, and we haven't found a best practice at all. I'd say half of the integrators that we are working with, they just make their own racking systems themselves. They don't even buy any off-the-shelf productized systems for mounting. Wow! And so it's just very interesting, the variability in this business based on roofs, pricing, design, and in that, we are hoping to kind of standardize some new best practices of how things should be installed.
0: Can you talk about some of the setbacks that either you or your company or both have had along the way?
1: Yes, first and foremost, with any new technology coming to market, there are constant gains and setbacks, which is the balance of keeping the ship excited and moving forward on a daily basis. For example, a win that we had right after we launched our first generation tracker was closing a big deal to install 1.3 megawatts on a Chiquita cold storage warehouse in Southern California. That's a very big rooftop project, an enormous win for a young hardware company. Very quickly, that turned into how on earth are we going to deliver this in the you know, nine weeks or 12 weeks for the first time that this requires to deliver this this product? Because the project needed to be interconnected before a certain date. Otherwise, the net metering numbers would change is back in the middle of 2017. So it was a very scary challenge to deliver that volume of hardware for the first time. But when we did on time, it was another win. So it's been a literally a, a monthly exercise of wins and challenges back and forth. And as long as they keep trending up, we know we're going in the right direction.
0: You need more wins than losses. Yep. It almost sounds like you answered this with Chiquita. But can you talk about the successes you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, I thought about this, having listened to some of your other podcasts and talking with you in the past about some of these things. I feel that one of the biggest wins I've had in business anyways, is back in Indiana, where my colleague, Austin Williams, who is now with us, he's our VP of business development at Point Load. But we met at this developer in the Midwest and found ourselves in the middle of some very complex projects that were not getting complete. The quick background is there was two interconnection agreements and PPAs signed, one with Michigan State University that was very big and the other was with Duke Energy and that site that was selected that was approved it was a federal EPA superfund site. What we found is that the project in Michigan was banking on a tax abatement which had never been done ever in Michigan for solar and the project on the Superfund site was non-financeable, according to everybody's opinion. That's when we stepped in and started working on these together. The result is we got them both financed, built, commissioned, and they're currently operating as designed. But what I'm most proud about is the way we went about engaging the community, the finance community, political community, and literally door knocking to rally support for each step of these projects to ultimately pull off two amazing projects with a financial institution called First Source Bank, that this was their first ever solar project that they invested and put tax equity towards and lent against. And now they have a booming solar practice, which is great to see. And we ended up getting the first ever tax abatement in the state of Michigan. And it is still the largest university carport project on a university campus in the United States that I'm aware of, which is just over 15 megawatts on these big parking lots. And that's all in a place where there's not very much sun to begin with. Right. And so, really, pulling all that together, it was a, a lot of work, but it impacted so many different groups positively that it's just something to be proud of. And it's really great to see that it's going to be there for the next 40 years. The EPA actually wrote a 26 page case study slash white paper about it that if you search EPA, Kokomo, Indiana, solar, it'll, it'll come up. It's very cool, cool to see.
0: It's awesome to see a project that you helped make happen that is going to be there for a long time, that you can always know is there, and you were such a major part of making it happen.
1: It is awesome. It, It is awesome.
0: And you said it was in Indiana and Michigan?
1: Yeah, it was at Michigan State University was the carport project, and Kokomo, Indiana was the Duke project, which was seven and a half megawatts on the ground. And they're both great. The equity partners that came into that deal. Again, some of this stuff you can't make up. At the time, I was working before I got en- enrolled to participate in these two projects to help solve some of these issues. I was down in Chile, Mexico, El Salvador, Ecuador, and Dominican Republic working on project development for our solar company. And I bumped into a Canadian renewable firm called Altera Power. And Altera Power is who ultimately, although I bumped into them in South America, ultimately funded our Indiana and Michigan projects. They were great projects, ultimately, the way they were structured as kind of led by Altera. However, I don't think it's a coincidence that this Canadian firm was led by a American CEO who was born in the city of Kokomo, Indiana. Coincidentally, (laughs) the VP of finance, his wife went to Michigan State and he's from Chicago in the Midwest. And then that was part of our pitch when we got the abatement. We said, sir, this was very complicated and this kind of thing doesn't happen. Please give us the abatement. And he said, okay. Can you talk
0: about your vision for the future with regards to climate change? Where do you think our world is going?
1: My vision for the future. I am by no means a scientist or futurist. However, I read and listen to a lot of scientists and futurists and tend to accept what practically makes the most sense to me. The future that I see, especially for energy is that of a fully adopted distributed generation and storage future where every structure that is consuming power ultimately makes their own as much as they can based on their condition of their, their structure. And as that rolls out, the grid has to find a new role in that, in that new future. And as more technology is adopted, more systems come online. Ultimately, how all those systems work with the grid, providing services and making money from it, kind of sets the foundation for what some call transactive energy, and ultimately a place for independent power producers and consumers to sell power netted amongst each other. And in that world, you've got a clean, low cost, highly efficient, safe grid, and people making money every day from what they actually invest in.
0: A lot of details need to get completed to make that kind of vision happen. But to me, that is the ultimate dream, a federated network of microgrids where they're all interacting, selling to each other. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's a really good point you, you bring up because where are we at today, I, I don't know. I've seen some private companies that are really going big on this future and they're selling the new energy infrastructure to facilitate that kind of thing at the grid level. At the same time I see utilities with these beautiful showcases of the water heater connected to the grid, which is connected to the dishwasher, connected to the demand response battery in the garage. And when really asking them, do these things actually all work together based on the signals that the grid sends? And oftentimes the answer is no. We, we hope it will work like this, but we, we're not at scale yet with some of these things actually working in the field. Like anything, I think it's a couple steps forward, a couple steps back, but it's clear that that's what everybody wants that we speak to anyways. And the ones that haven't expressed that they want it yet, I think they see the writing on the wall that it's a momentum shifting very quickly and they need to get on board. There are a
0: lot of hurdles that need to be overcome. I think there's a lot more and than ors. So I think you might see central energy, you might see distributed energy. I'm glad that so many companies are working on so many of these different visions because I think we need, we need a lot of success, and I think there's room for a lot of success.
1: Here's the stuff that gives me hope. Again, having moved to California from Indiana, my perception was that everybody's going to be buying solar left and right. It's Los Angeles. They're going to do it because it's green, et cetera. Well, since we're focused on big rooftops, my first stop was Bakersfield and then Riverside and Fresno. I would say a lot of these folks that I met are about a mile right of the tea party, dependent independent as they could possibly get. And when spending a lot of time in a place like Kern County, what gives me a lot of hope for a claim renewable future is that Kern County being one of the biggest oil and gas producing counties in the country is also the biggest renewable producer, certainly in California and probably one of the top counties in the entire country for producing wind and solar. And when politically... You get to see an actual group of people that are generally contrary to what kicked off some of these clean energy conversations in the first place, are the leader because they've really gone deep into facilitating a lot of the stuff coming online. It it works. Whatever their drivers were and and the process that they put in place works and works with flying colors. That gives me hope. It's the, the group that shouldn't be doing it, but is doing it best. It's doable everywhere.
0: How do you think the pandemic affects the vision or the future of climate change?
1: There's so many angles and things happening right now with this pandemic that are very far above my pay grade. I will say that even before March, when the pandemic started, there was a noticeable and for a few years really has been a noticeable trend where the adoption of renewables, the interest of renewable energy and clean energy, and the fashionability of fossil fuels versus clean energy has been accelerating very fast, not just policy drivers, but Things like the Business Renewable Center at Rocky Mountain Institute, where you have huge businesses coming together that hire people, spend money, make money, make investments, and they're the ones that run things. And when these groups get together and say, this is what we want, and we want to be 100% green quickly, that is a trend that can't be ignored. We've even seen it recently trickle down into our regional businesses, even on conversations of just dollars and cents. When those investment opportunities make more money and better ROIs than their company's core business, they get done. My hope is that with the pandemic and as the world transitions to this new life of COVID-19, there's been a lot of positioning from politicians and interest groups for new agendas and things. My hope is that the right agendas get approved and move forward specifically related to the environment, Uh, because even though there's momentum, it still needs all the momentum it can get and support to keep accelerating the clean energy future.
0: You can never have too much momentum.
1: That's that's right.
0: (laughs) you have any questions for me?
1: I do. Is there anything that you've identified that utilities, which admittedly are massive ships with a lot of moving parts, but practical initiatives or steps that they can take to be a part of the transformation as opposed to be an opponent to it?
0: Like most corporations, utilities, and I'm going to talk about investor-owned utilities, are in business to make money. And I think it's very admirable of the technology companies out there that are doing a lot to also have a positive impact on society. And I think some utilities do that as well. But they're trying to answer to their shareholders. They're worried about hurting profits if they invest in the wrong things. So I think that left to their own devices, unless there's money attached to it, they're less likely to get engaged. On the other hand, the main way they make money is doing what the regulators tell them to do because the regulators usually reward them when they do those things. So the regulators, if they wanted to unleash the power of the utilities, remember the utilities have a tremendous amount of capital. The utilities have people that understand safety and reliability, all the things that we want. If the regulatory commissions were to empower the utilities to go after it, to go after climate change, and they rewarded them, the utilities, I tell you, would be more than happy to invest lots of money if that means they get to make lots of money. So I think, if you want to get them engaged in the fight, it's the regulators that need to do that.
1: One, one last question on that. Theme. Sure. There's been another trend that we've been seeing where utilities, very large ones, have been losing customers based on customers' wild independence and distributed generation going offline and cutting the cord, while at the same time, a lot of M&A around those same utilities buying companies like SunPower or Socor or other clean energy groups. Any thoughts on that circular trend that we're seeing?
0: Well, I think the executives at most energy companies see what's going on. And a number of them, remember, there's thousands of utilities, if you count MOUs and POUs. And so they see what's going on with distributed energy. They want to get in the game. They want to at least understand the game. So it's not surprising that they're dipping their toe in, in order to understand what's going on better. They all have their own boards. They all have their own strategies. Some have gone in and gotten out. I know a number of IOUs that have gotten in to distributed renewables and gotten out. You talked before about how when you talk to a commercial customer, they're trying to decide whether to invest their capital in their core business or in saving money in energy, and they're going to make whatever financially makes sense. Utilities are similar. They are looking at what is going to get them the best return, and I don't know that they're seeing the best returns out of those distributed energy companies right now. I think if they were successful distributed energy companies that were making a lot of money, you would see that kind of takeover happen of those companies. But the numbers have to work out.
1: Right. The alternative future that I see is the same utility companies buying their customers back as enough momentum takes off as systems go in, especially ones that become financed buying them back through acquisitions in M&A.
0: It's a very different business model though. So they have to be convinced that that business model was gonna work for them. They get a little bit nervous when it's not cost plus and they have to compete in the market and new money is made by getting new deals. So it's a very different business model.
1: Yeah, it it is. It also allows regulated utilities to compete in different places by essentially buying back the other guy's customers instead.
0: Right, but when they do that, generally they're not in the regulated market anymore. And they are pretty good. Their core competency in regulated markets is very strong. They know how to work with regulators. They know how to finance. They know how to build project teams. But their core competencies don't tend to work well when the money is at risk because that is not something they're used to doing. That's something you're used to doing.
1: (laughs) Which is why I try and stay out of predicting the future.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want to say?
1: Well, I first appreciate you having me on the the podcast. I love what you're doing and I love the different perspectives that you're bringing together. I will say that one of the other hopes that keeps me positive and moving forward is seeing so many different types of people with different backgrounds, all working with different strategies to solve the same thing. Very inspiring. And and that kind of thing keeps us going every day. So I appreciate you and and thank you for having me on, on the show. That
0: is very nice of you to say thank you. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'll wrap it up with a wrap. We met when we were starting out on the floor on the ground. I was starting my podcast. You were doing your seed round. It inspired you. The view from the earth in space was really touching, but you were afraid to float away. Thank you, Space Admiral Russian. (laughs) It's personal to you that people should help one another, but also personal because it's your business's bread and butter. Commercial and industrial solar opportunities—they seemed like the most—and you found technology to solve it. By my boy Bill Gross. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> that's the rhyme. <laughs> I'm not going to finish it, because you just did. I like that we talked a little about a new role for the grid. You really like the word, realize, because it's all about making it real. That's the prize. My assertion that was wrong, so it made a big splat, wasn't saying commercial rooftops were easy because they're flat. It was good, but it was hard to deliver. Then it got sweeter a huge rooftop installation with Chiquita. Knocking on doors and knowing someone, that's how you get it done in Kokomo, Indiana, and Nishigun.
1: Yeah. Mic drop.
0: <laughs> okay. Conrad didn't push this very hard, but I'm going to. Point Load Power's PV Booster Rooftop Racking System took home top honors, two Platinum Cleanee Awards for both Startup of the Year and Product of the Year a few months ago at the 2019 Solar Power International Conference. That's double platinum and certainly worthy of making a big deal over. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, Visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. For more than a decade, prior to co-founding Point Load Power, Conrad was making it real in finance and global business development leadership positions focused in the solar, mining, and real estate development industries internationally. Basically, he's been making things real for quite a while, living up to the word he really respects, realize. Taking challenging ideas and making them double platinum real is critical to mitigating climate change.